Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode number 204, Siberia, part 3, Women and Children. Last time we began our discussion of the use of Siberia to put people away in prison camps known as gulags. Today we will be focusing on how women and children handled the harsh conditions. It is also the 10th anniversary of the start of the Russian Rulers History Podcast. It began on April 30th, 2010, and in the middle of this episode, I'm going to have the announcement about how we're moving forward. The script for this episode is, without a doubt, the most difficult one I've ever done in either this or my other podcast, Battleground History. The stories of pain and suffering of the women and children I read to produce this is as heart-wrenching as anything I could have ever imagined. But before I start, I'd like to read the dedication to Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago. Quote, I dedicate this to all those who did not live to tell it. And may they please forgive me for not having seen it all, nor remembered it all, for not having divined all of it. His monumental account of the horrific conditions was published in 1973, and it exposed the system of gulags that enslaved so many of his countrymen for nothing more than being cheap labor. It is no easy read due to its subject and its length, but I believe it should be mandatory reading for anyone wanting to understand what so many millions of people went through from the 1930s to the 1980s. Little did Solzhenitsyn know that his book has been lauded by many as the catalyst for the eventual demise of the government that constructed the gulag system. He was one of the few that thought his book would help. As he put it, quote, Oh yes, gulag was destined to affect the course of history. I was sure of that. The day before he was sent into exile, February 12, 1974, he said, You Bolsheviks are finished. There are no two ways about it. I hope today that I can tell some stories about how women and children suffered with the same feeling that Mr. Solzhenitsyn did in his dedication. It is graphic at times, so if you don't think it's appropriate for children, uh, now would be a time to uh, have them go off somewhere else, but it is pretty brutal. Now, before the Bolsheviks came into power, the Tsars forced settlers to populate Siberia. Between 1824 and 1889, according to the fabulous author Anne Applebaum in her book Gulag, A History, some 720,000 people were sent into exile. What was interesting was the number of women who went, about 15%, or around 108,000. That would be about six men for each woman. If you think there's a problem with social isolationism with the COVID-19 outbreak, just imagine being sent to Siberia, where your neighbor might be a mile away. You're trying to sustain life on poor land, scrounging for any morsel of food, lonely and bored to death. Many not only died of starvation, but many also died of alcoholism. Now, all of this suffering during the Tsarist time was mainly for the poor. The wealthy were treated far better. One of the members of the Decemberist Uprising of 1825, Sergei Volkonsky, 
and his wife, Princess Maria Volkanskaya, helped to build a theater and a concert hall in Irkutsk. Living in Siberia didn't stop their soirees and an invitation-only dinners. Life was harder, but the elite didn't suffer too bad. Moving forward in time for the women and children, there was a dehumanizing process that went on prior to being shipped to the gulags. It was something akin to what the Nazis did to the Jews during World War II. As Applebaum puts it, quote, Before their actual arrest in Stalin's Soviet Union, enemies were also routinely humiliated in public meetings, fired from their jobs, expelled from the Communist Party, divorced by their disgusted spouses, and denounced by their angry children. The women and children didn't have to go to the gulags to suffer. Just having a husband accused of being an enemy of the state was enough. They usually lost their jobs and their apartments, as well as their friends if the husband was sent away, and many times even their own families would shun them. One thing should be said, there was a distinct difference between Nazi concentration camps and the gulags of the USSR. Back to Applebaum. Quote, There were differences in the daily life and of work, different sorts of guards and punishments, different kinds of propaganda. The gulag lasted far longer and went through cycles of relative cruelty and relative humanity. The history of Nazi camps is shorter and contains less variation. They simply became crueler and crueler until the retreating Germans liquidated them or the invading allies liberated them. The Gulag also contained a wide variety of camps, from the lethal gold mines of the Kolyama region to the luxurious secret institutes outside Moscow, where prisoner scientists designed weapons for the Red Army. Although they were different camps in the Nazi system, the range was far narrower. You know, ever since I started this, and and before when I really started studying uh, Russian and, of course, Soviet history, I wondered how the whole idea of the practical aspect of the Gulag came about. And I was truly amazed by the answer. Back in the early 1930s, Stalin wanted to take the land from the peasants who owned bits of land, more land than many of their fellow peasants. He would call these people kulaks. He was quoted as saying, we must smash the kulaks, eliminate them as a class. The problem we faced was how to do this. And I'm going to quote James C. Davis here, who wrote a simply marvelous book that I highly recommend called The Human Story. Quote, exactly how to smash the kulaks wasn't clear. If the government simply shot them, it got no work from them. If it put them in concentration camps, there was little work to make them do, and they also had to be fed. Also, everybody knew that slave laborers were poor producers. Then, a former wealthy man, himself in prison, wrote to Stalin to suggest a labor scheme. His basic concept, not very complicated, was to subordinate food intake to work output. Send the prisoners, he suggested, to some awful place where there was work to do. Feed them very little and squeeze perhaps six months of hard labor from them. When they died of hunger, cold, and exhaustion, bring in others. For making this suggestion, the former millionaire was released from prison 
and himself appointed a director in the system he proposed. That is just truly amazing to me. So what does this have to do with women and children? We return back to the human story. Quote, Men with guns stormed villages and rounded up the so-called kulaks. More than 15 million women, men, and children. They were jammed in railroad cars and hauled for days or weeks to lonely places in the Arctic North. And from there, they marched across the tundra and through the forests. By the time they reached their camps, 15 to 20 percent, mainly children, had already died. Kulaks were forced to mine gold in Siberia, especially in the northeastern part, which was the coldest part of the country. There was also a project to dig a canal between the Baltic and White Seas by hand. The number of peasants who died this way will never be known because, as one official said, quote, no one was counting. When the census was taken, there were so many people missing that members of the census board were arrested and many executed for, quote, treasonably exerting themselves to diminish the population. It's estimated that 8 million people died in 1933 because of the plan to collectivize the farms and send those poor souls to Siberia. Many were women and children. One of the great tragedies of the Gulag era, a term I'll use from here on, the period from 1930 to 1953, It's its effect on children, especially the small ones. Many died quickly from the travel to the camp, as I've said previously. Many died of measles and typhus. This was in part due to them being put in orphanages. Their parents weren't necessarily dead. They were likely working in another gulag. To the state, they may as well have been dead, with their children now belonging to the Soviet Union. Many parents would never know the fate of their children. As you might imagine, one of the terrible fates of women in the camps was rape. It was actually more than just a violent act. Sometimes it was consensual but coerced. The conditions of cold and hunger were so extreme that it turned the most stoic and proper women into someone who would do anything for food, shelter, or clothing. Here's the story of a young Polish girl who was transformed by the cruel conditions. Now, she had been harassed and denied any extra food except the meager offerings provided her for a number of weeks. From the recall of Gustav Herling, a former Gulag inmate, quote, From that time the girl underwent a complete change. She never hurried to get her soup from the kitchen as before, but after her return from work, wandered about the camp zone till late at night, like a cat in heat. Whoever wanted to could have her, on a bunk, under a bunk, and separate cubicles of the technical experts were in the clothing store. Whenever she met me, she turned her head aside and tightened her lips convulsively. Once, entering the potato store at the center, I found her on a pile of potatoes with the brigadier of the 56th the hunchbacked half-breed Levkovich. She burst into a spasmodic fit of weeping, and as she returned to the camp zone in the evening, she held back her tears with two tiny fists. Rape and prostitution were so commonplace that it was almost expected. Lev Razgon recalled this incident. 
He was already freed, but remained in the area. Lev had some food at lunchtime, which he gave to a young girl he could tell was hungry. Quote, the girl finished eating and neatly piled the plates on the wooden tray. Then she lifted her dress, pulled off her pants, and, holding them in her hand, turned her unsmiling face in my direction. Lying down or what? she asked. At first not understanding, then scared by my response, she said in self-justification, again, without a smile, People don't feed me without it. But it was all not terribly horrible. There were incredible tales of love, compassion, and caring. There were numerous stories about the passing of notes between the male side of the gulag and the female side. Returning to the absolutely fabulous book Gulag by Anne Applebaum, quote, Prisoners also organized a secret mailbox in the railway work zone where the women's brigades labored. Every few days, a woman working on the railroad would pretend to have forgotten a coat or other object, go to the mailbox, pick up what letters had been sent, and leave letters in return. Relationships sometimes between people who didn't even meet each other, yet they yearned for anything to keep themselves emotionally together. Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the book Gulag Archipelago writes, quote, In this marriage with an unknown person on the other side of a wall, I hear a choir of angels. It is like the unselfish, pure contemplation of heavenly bodies. It is too lofty for this age of self-interested calculation and hopping up and down jazz. In the book My Sister's Mother, Donna Soleka Urbikas, tells the tale of the relationship she had with her mother and older sister, both of whom were arrested by the Soviet secret police on January 10, 1940, before she was born. She also recounts the difficulty she had in the relationship with them, as they had a different bond. It is this deep relationship that a child has with their mother that caused many women in the Gulag era to purposely get pregnant. Their abject loneliness made them yearn to give birth, even in the midst of such difficult conditions. Bedbugs were a constant problem, attacking the newborn children. The mother still had to work, as Hava Volovich recounts. Quote, There were three mothers there, and we were given a tiny room to ourselves in the barracks. Bedbugs poured down like sand from the ceiling and walls. We spent the whole night brushing them off the children. During the daytime, we had to go to work and leave the infants with any old woman who we could find who had been excused from work. These women would calmly help themselves to the food we left for the children. Her story that was shared in Applebaum's book would be impossible for me to read to you as the emotional nature of it is hard to verbalize. I strongly suggest you pick up the book, as has a number of the uh, people on Facebook when I uh, showed a picture of the books I was using for this episode. Uh, read the chapter about women and children to get the full force of, ha- of Hava Volovich's story. Suffice it to say, the child only lived for 16 months. As she put it, quote, she had spent one year and four months in this world and died on 3 March 1944. That is the story of how, in giving birth to my only child, I committed the worst crime there is. 
That was a hard one to read. Uh, I'm going to pause here for a few minutes to fill you in on the development of a new platform to help me share my love of Russian history with you. As I mentioned in the beginning, this episode represents my 10th anniversary in producing the podcast. It has been a passion for me, but as my wife will tell you, an expensive one. The books that I have to buy when they are not available at my library, as well as paying to host the podcast, has cost quite a bit. While I've really appreciated those of you who have donated to the cause, and there are many of you, it hasn't come close to paying any of the expenses. To top everything off, we have the coming of a pandemic. It has hurt many economically in our world, and hopefully not you. One of my businesses, Knowledge Through Solutions, sells our products to gyms worldwide, as well as college and professional sports teams. As you can imagine, they're pretty much all out of commission as of late, and we've taken quite a bit of a hit. Well, that being said, I've made the difficult decision to move over to a pay-per-listen model using Patreon as my platform. I will still put out an occasional episode here for free, but I'll be focusing mostly on my paid site. I will have two levels, the Boyar Patron, which is just $5 a month, and for that I will guarantee you an episode every 15th and 30th of the month, a unique new one. And every week I'll be reading a chapter from my book, Understanding Russia, A History of Russia Through Its Rulers. It will cover 113 chapters, so I got you covered for a couple of years. Also, I'll be doing book reviews every month, both fiction and nonfiction. Of course, I'll be looking to you to give me suggestions. As for the second level, the Czar Patron, at $10 per month, you get everything from being a Boyar Patron, plus access to quarterly group chats with me on Zoom, access to scripts with links to additional information, a free copy of my upcoming book, which is tentatively set for release in September 2020, and you will get me to have to produce an episode on a topic that you choose, of course, within reason. If you're interested, and I really hope you are, go to patreon.com slash Russian rulers to sign up today and begin the new journey with me and your fellow Russian history fans today. The first episode will be known as Russia Before the Russians. I'm also going to do, in uh, the second and third episodes, reviews of the ancient Slavic gods and the religion before the conversion by Vladimir the Great into Orthodoxy. And then an episode or two about the historians who have given us all this information over the uh, thousands of years about Russia. All these ones from my professor, Dr. Paul Average, to all the other ones going back to the primary chronicles. It's going to be a fabulous journey. I've already got a lot of this planned out. Uh, again, if you have suggestions, those of you who are on the uh, czar patron level, I'll produce an episode for you. Well, now it's back to Siberia, women and children. The statistics about the number of women in the Gulag system in 1949 is somewhat staggering. There were about 503,000 women, of which 9,300 were pregnant, and 2,300-790 had small children with them. Got to tell you, the Soviet Union, they had numbers. They were pretty, pretty precise. What is more difficult to wrap one's head around is the effect psychologically on the children. There was so little contact between mother and child after they stopped breastfeeding them, usually after 18 months. 
that education was a non-starter. Now, here's the recollection of those who survived infancy where, quote, only certain of the four-year-olds could produce a few often unconnected words. Inarticulate howls, mimicry, and blows were the main means of communication. How could they be expected to speak? Who is there to teach them? explained Anya dispassionately. In the infants' group, they spent their whole time just lying on their cots. Nobody will pick them up, even if they cry their lungs out. It's not allowed, except to change wet diapers, when there were dry ones available, of course. Those who survived would eventually be transferred to state-run orphanages. Here's a description of one of the orphanages for the children of arrested kulaks. Quote, Children sleep on the floor. They don't have enough shoes. Sometimes there's no water for several days. They eat badly, aside from water and potatoes. They have no lunch. There are no plates and bowls. They eat in turns or by hand. There is no light, only one lamp for the whole home, and it has no kerosene. As they grew older, many resorted to becoming members of criminal gangs. One such child was Vladimir Glebov, the son of Leb Kamenev, one of the leaders of the Bolsheviks. He was arrested when Vladimir was only four. He was sent to the Special Children's Orphanage in western Siberia. Glebov remembered the following, quote, My buddy taught me some things which helped me a lot in later life about protecting myself. Here I have one scar and here another. And when people are attacking you with a knife, you need to know how to fight back. The main principle is to respond in advance, not let them hit you. That was our happy Soviet childhood. When parents were finally released, they went looking for their children. If found, many refused to leave with their parents despite the horrible conditions. They had been told that their parents were enemies of the state and told them not to go with them because they were bad people. Those who were old enough would run away from the orphanages, something that the authorities really didn't mind. Fewer mouths to feed and take care of. These children had to now fend for themselves, which meant joining gangs and committing crimes to support themselves. When they got caught, they'd be sent right back into the system. they just escaped. But now they would be made to work to survive, just like their parents. Around 1945, there were 842,144 homeless children who could be found in what were called reception centers. Labor educational colonies housed 52,830 children. These were closer to concentration camps than you might think. In 1935, laws were passed that allowed children as young as 12 to be charged like adults. From there on, things began to really become absurd. Children as young as 10 were now being arrested and charged with being counter-revolutionaries. They'd be interrogated using the same methods of torture and questioning as their adult counterparts. One boy, 16-year-old Jersey Kimichek, was asked, How much did Mr. Churchill pay you for providing information? The boy didn't even know who Churchill was. Children of the Siberian gulags lost any sense of morality. As Solzhenitsyn put it, in, quote, in their consciousness, there was no demarcation line between what was permissible and what was not permissible, and no concept of good and evil. For them, everything that they had desired was good, 
and everything that hindered them was bad. They acquired their brazen and insolent manner of behavior because it was the most advantageous form of conduct in the camp. It became common knowledge among the people of the Soviet Union that these children were to become the criminals after the Gulag era ended. A whole generation of children who knew nothing more than the cruelty of the prisons they grew up in. As Applebaum concludes her chapter on women and children of the Gulags, quote, Decades of propaganda, of posters draped across orphanage walls, thanking Stalin for her happy childhood, failed to convince the Soviet people that the children of the camps, the children of the streets, and the children of the orphanages had, had ever become anything but full-fledged members of the Soviet Union's large and all-embracing criminal caste. Well, that's it for today. I can't ask if you enjoyed today's episode, as it was a tough road to plow through. I just hope it gave you the feeling and let you feel the hardships that women and children of the Siberian Gulags had to endure. As for when the next episode on this platform will be released, not really sure. I'd really appreciate it if you would try out the new Patreon feed, at least for a few months, to keep Russia on your mind. The first episode, as I said before, will be Russia Before the Russians and will come out on May 15th, with the following episode on May 30th. I will trace the many people who lived in the lands that would become the country it would eventually develop into. As I said, the second and third episodes will be about the gods of old Russia, where we'll discuss ancient Slavic paganism and native faith, some of which exist to this day. Other episodes will be ones about the historians throughout history that gave us this information, and much, much more. I want to deeply thank all of you for your support and interest in my endeavor over the past 10 years. I feel like I've got so many friends. Uh, Don't forget to join us on Facebook if you haven't already. It's a vibrant community. They share so much. The pictures that some of you are sharing of old Russia is just amazing. And just the commentary and the links to different types of information about Russia is fabulous. So, as always, until next time. До свидания и спасибо большое.